Hello and welcome to the Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. Today on episode 22, I bring you Cody McKay, or as he's affectionately known as Cardiac Cody. Cody had an ascending aortic aneurysm that led to open heart surgery when he was 29 years old. He has had an amazing recovery and he shares all his tips and tricks on how he is thriving now post open heart surgery. Welcome to the Heart Chamber, hope, inspiration, and healing conversations on open heart surgery. I am your host, Boots Knighton. If you are a heart patient, a caregiver, a healthcare provider, a healer, or are just looking for open-hearted living, this podcast is for you. To make sure you are in rhythm with the Heart Chamber, be sure to subscribe or follow wherever you are listening to this episode. While you are listening today, think of someone who may appreciate this information. The number one way people learn about a podcast is through a friend. Don't you want to be the reason someone you know gained this heartfelt information? And if you haven't already, follow me on Instagram, two different places, at boots.nighton or at the Heart Chamber Podcast. You can also find me on LinkedIn as well as Facebook. But enough with the directions. Without further delay, let's get to this week's episode. So thank you, Cody McKay, for your willingness to come on to the Heart Chamber. I found Cody through social media, the beauty of hashtags on Instagram. I was looking for people who would be willing to come on and share their stories of hope and healing from open heart surgery. And Cody caught my eye. He is a cyclist and super ambitious about basically paying it forward and helping those that come after him like I am doing. And so I instantly was drawn to Cody's story. So Cody, thank you so much for uh, your willingness to be vulnerable and come on to this podcast because I know your story is going to inspire so many people. Yeah, no, it's really great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So Cody, help us set the scene. Like, where are you? Tell us like, what do you do? Your age? Give us kind of like the lay of the land of Cody McKay's life at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm based in Ottawa, Ontario. I'm uh, 32 years old now. Uh, My nine to five, I work as a policy analyst, but basically all other times I'm on my bike, uh, either trying to race it or use it as a tool to uh, go on some adventures and see different communities that I haven't been into before. I previously was a a cross country and track and field runner. And so when I moved to Ottawa for work about eight years ago now, I took it as an opportunity to try a new sport. I was kind of tired with running at that point and uh, wanted to try something new and and very quickly found myself falling in love with racing my bike. So a lot of similarities in the endurance side of things, but it was a new, uh, new way to get me excited about continuing to be involved in sport as I entered or exited the kind of the varsity ecosystem of, of post-secondary and, and entered the, the working phase of my life. It was in 2021, so I was 29 years old at the time. I had been dealing with some shortness of breath issues, 
and they ordered a chest x-ray to see if there was any sort of lung infection or anything else like that. I, I suffer from pretty bad seasonal allergies and, and indoor allergies as well. And so because of the pandemic being uh, about a year in at that point, a lot of non-essential hospital and clinical visits were not being followed through on. And so I had been about a year off of getting my monthly immunotherapy. And so there's a thought that maybe the allergies had kind of regressed into a worse form of asthma or something along those lines. And so they wanted to look at the lungs to see if there was any sort of indication of inflammation or anything like that. And while that x-ray came out normal, there's no issues with the lungs there. What they did find is a bit of an abnormality with my heart. Essentially, they said it looked like it was casting a larger shadow on the chest x-ray than they would have expected. Thankfully, uh, I live in Ottawa, which is uh, home to the University of Ottawa Heart Institute, which is Canada's largest cardiac center. And they said, okay, we're going to send you off to the Heart Institute to do some tests. Naturally, as a 29-year-old and feeling like, uh, you know, heavily involved in sport and so otherwise feeling fairly invincible, thought not much of it other than the frustration that I was still dealing with some shortness of breath issues and went in pretty mindlessly for my tests. So they did um, an echocardiogram and then sent me on my way. And about a month after that, I got a message that said, we're going to send you in for uh, a CT scan. Help us understand the Canadian healthcare system. You said there was a month that went by from your echo till you were about to tell us about the next call you got. Does it take a while for you to get your results there in Canada? Once everything was sorted out, not really. I think it was more of a, a matter that I was a referral patient into the Heart Institute. And so there was that period of you know, I'm an outsider getting some tests that then have to be routed back to my my doctor's office that then have to be looked at to then say, okay, what's the next plan of action routed back into the Art Institute, so on and so forth. And all this happened without your like advocating, like you just went about your life. You went about riding your bike. Oh yeah. I was completely oblivious to everything at this point. Oh wow. Yeah. Gotcha. Still thinking about how to fix the shortness of breath issue. Still thinking about, I mean, there wasn't really much racing happening at this point again because of COVID, but I, I had had a really good season of training the year before that. And so I was quite, you know, excited to see that progression continue and was frustrated that this was kind of taking things off the rails. So I was being a little bit, you know, boneheaded, stumbering, more preoccupied with thinking about that aspect of it uh, rather than saying, you know, I wonder what all these tests are about and, you know, could these be serious by any chance? But it was around when the when the CT got ordered that it was like, okay, these are not normal tests that you just send someone in for for no reason. And so shortly after that, the confirmation came that I was currently living with ascending aortic aneurysm. And so I very quickly went from um, thinking about, you know, how do I get myself back on track to training to going, oh, wow, this is pretty serious. When I first received the diagnosis, I didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't think much of it, but I was so naive to the whole ecosystem of, of heart and cardiovascular diseases. You know, the name didn't mean much to me. It took some some reading and learning and understanding to really realize the gravity of the situation I was in. This is not, you know, just a bum knee that you can ignore. This is uh, pretty life and death. And naturally, that meant that uh, my mental health went on a bit of a roller coaster as well. I went on from feeling quite invincible to feeling like, uh, oh, you know, if I sneeze the wrong way, this thing might rupture. And then goodbye, Cody. <laughs> so Right. And walk us through that a little bit because, and I would love to do a little bit of compare contrast with American and Canadian healthcare systems too throughout your journey. But I know at least in America for myself and many of the heart patients, I've already had the privilege of meeting the emotional mental components of heart 
issues are just not addressed. And then you are kind of left out to do your own management of basically your nervous system. So yeah, I can only imagine how jarring this was for you. Like you said, you were invincible prime of your life and then bam, no, this x-ray finds something completely like out of the blue for you. That had to be quite the roller coaster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can certainly empathize with, you know, other individuals that have had their own journeys with with heart disease or cardiovascular disease. And I feel like a lot a lot of individuals may with the types of challenges that I had may have learned these types of things earlier in their life. But for me it was kind of the total one eighty of understanding of something happening within a, within a one week or two week period, uh, going from being, you know, Cody, the guy that really likes to push himself as a cyclist as hard as he can to Cody, the guy that's living with a very life threatening condition. It wasn't something that kind of was monitored and, and grew over time. And in my instance, it was ultimately found to be connected to a previously unknown congenital birth defect with my aortic valve. So did you have a bicuspid valve? I'm kind of straddling in a, in a unique zone. My surgeon said I have some some tendencies of a unicuspid valve. So I, I really rolled the lucky dice on that one, you know, because a bicuspid valve is actually not actually that uncommon in individuals, but a unicuspid valve is a fair bit more uncommon. He wouldn't classify it as a full-blown unicuspid valve. There was just very minor amounts of fusing on some of the the leaflets that would have kind of given it some of those tendencies. And so when they saw that, they figured, you know, paired with a lack of any other credible reason for an individual like myself to have an aneurysm at my age, that was really seen as the what would have been slowly changing the impact of my aorta over multiple years of my life. But that in and of itself is a really crazy thing to think about in hindsight, because that means that there was many years in my life where I was running as a, as a varsity cross country and track and field athlete was coaching freestyle skiing for many years. And now I've been racing my bike for many years. And this thing has been there the whole time. This isn't, you know, something that developed in a period of the week and few, we caught it in time and we never really did much with it, but it was this unknown kind of ticking time bomb that was sitting there. And thankfully nothing ever happened with it because there's certainly a scenario where that chest x-ray wasn't ordered or that, you know, the fact that they looked at my heart and not my lungs on that x-ray, there's so many different scenarios that could have happened there. And the outcomes associated with that would have been, I would have continued to race and train and and just be completely naive of this thing that was happening under my skin. And that one probably would have had a much worse, uh, worse outcome. Right, right. And then wondering why you couldn't breathe, you know, like there was so much there. So yeah, you were saying that you had the echo and then a month goes by and then you get a call. Yeah. And so then I go in for uh, a CT, and then it's shortly after that where the the confirmation comes that there is an ascending aortic aneurysm. And once I'm kind of routed into the Heart Institute, I'm assigned a cardiologist, and I'm working within their own team uh, directly. Things really start to improve quite a bit. I'm super thankful to have had a, a great cardiologist who immediately looked at the situation, understood you know, not just the the biology or the physiology of the situation, but also the mental aspects of it as well as an individual who is heavily involved in sport and suddenly having that aspect of their lives, uh, life removed, the mental health associated with it, you know, of just how do I live with this? Can I live with this? How is this going to change? You know, what are the things that bring me joy in life? And can I not do those things anymore? Like there's a much more holistic look at the pros and cons and how do we manage the situation, but also looking at it from a medical standpoint to say, you know, this is a very young athletic individual the usual list of suspects for what causes an aortic aneurysm. A lot of these get removed quite a bit, just even from the echo and the CT to say, you know, there's no stenosis, there's no calcification, there's nothing here that's really indicating 
that the the aneurysm would have been caused by many things. And so very quickly, it was kind of by rule of elimination brought down to either genetics or a bicuspid valve. And because the the echo wasn't really able to pick up the minor fusing on the valve, it looked tricuspid from the imaging. And so there was a lot of emphasis put on, okay, let's make sure there's no larger genetic issues at play here, you know, things like uh, Ehlers-Danlos or Marfans or things like that. So had to do, you know, full genetic testing and get those things sorted out as well. Wow. And then waiting for those results, how long did that take? That one took a while. Yeah. It's like six to eight yeah. weeks, right? Yeah. And surprisingly, I mean, nothing ever came back of those. I, I was told from the get-go that there's a chance that you'll get a very slim chance on one end that you'll get a very firm no based on, you know, the amount of the human genome that's been decoded. There's a big gray area in the middle, and then there's a, a small sliver of, you know, a very hard yes. So uh, despite the improvements in genetic testing, there's still a lot of question marks that come from the results of genetic testing. And there was an expectation that I would probably fall within that gray area, something kind of pinging off and saying, okay, there's something a little bit not normal here, but we can't really say with 100% confidence, yes, you have Marfans or you have X. But they they said the results came back in the no. And so that, again, was one of the things that ultimately pointed back towards a valve uh, mutation because... I mean, there's still a lot of, like I said, a lot of the genome that needs to be decoded and it will be something I'll have to keep an eye on. But at least for where the science is right now, there was nothing really to say genetics or a larger issue with uh, muscle elasticity or, or tissue elasticity was at play. Wow. What an emotional roller coaster. So about what time of year was this? You said 2021. So there was a pandemic happening. So let's not forget that. Yeah, that also causes a little bit of delays in the in the whole delivery. Of right. That. And I had my heart surgery in the same year as you, 2021. So I I feel you. So how much time has passed now? You get you get the CT scan, you do the genetic testing. Where are we at? So uh, actually, a lot of this ended up happening later on. So the, the confirmation didn't really come until mid-year through 2021. And by the end of 2021, I was already working with cardiac rehab previous to having any sort of surgery. Looking at uh, my background as being an athlete and the size of the aneurysm, there was an ability to still do things, but I had to learn how to do things differently. And for me, they wanted to make sure that I didn't go from doing everything to doing nothing because that was not only going to have a negative impact on my mental health, but it was going to have a negative impact on my physical health as well. And so in my case, there was an ability to still do riding. Riding in and of itself wasn't dangerous necessarily for me, but the risks came with the changes in intensity of activity. And so that obviously meant racing was off the table, interval training was off the table, sprinting, you know, being playful with friends in that regard was off the table. But that didn't mean biking and full stop was off the table. And so they worked me through cardiac rehab to help to learn what would my new limits be, what could I do safely. And with the support of cardiac rehab, I was able to build a modified weight program and I was able to build a modified riding program. And so over the course of winter of 21, 22, I got back to riding my bike. I got back to doing some off-bike training and I was able to live a much more, you know, full life in that regard again. And ironically, 2022 ended up being a year that I I've still now, you know, 2023 is coming to a close and I don't think I'm going to beat it. It will be the year that I put the most annual mileage on my bike. So living with an aneurysm, and this comes with having the surgery in December of 2022. So my surgery ultimately came in, in December of 2022. So in 11 months, 
I ended up riding more kilometers than I've ever ridden in 12 months and will be more than I have ridden in the, in the 12 months of 2023 as well. That in and of itself is really part of the journey that I wanted to, to share as I started to be more public about this whole experience, because there was a perception for me, at least when I first faced this diagnosis, that I was going to have to live a radically different life. And what I learned over the course of the early days of my diagnosis and subsequent work with cardiac rehab and, and learning a little bit more about you know, what is an aneurysm and what does it mean to live with an aneurysm? A lot of individuals live with medically managed aneurysms. And the the last thing I'd want to do is give this perception that because you have an aneurysm, you have to live this, you know, sheltered bubble life. I was riding 120, 150 kilometers quite easily with this aneurysm still in my body. It just meant I had to approach the ride a little bit different. And every individual is going to have different levels of what that means for them. In my instance, my my previous training meant that I had a fairly high aerobic ceiling. And as long as I was kind of at a, a mid-grade percentage of that aerobic effort, it meant that I could still ride my bike no problem because the, the changes in the body at that intensity were not really going to be enough to cause a, a significant pressure against the aneurysm. Was my heart rate going to be elevated? Yeah, 100%. But it wasn't going to be elevated in tandem with you know blood pressure and other issues in the body that could have put me at a significant level of risk. It's the same thing that I learned as I was going through the cardiac rehab program with weights. You know, 100% should not be lifting heavy weights when you have an aneurysm because the Valsalva movement, for example, that like kind of grunting and pressure motion within your torso uh, can put a lot of pressure on the aneurysm itself. And that's where you start to see the risk of dissection or rupture. But that doesn't mean you can't do a modified program of exercises. And so that's what I really started to incorporate over the period of 2022. Wow. I have like so many curiosities and questions because I... In the United States, particularly as a woman, women are oftentimes not referred for cardiac rehab. And I've actually joined a national organization called Women Heart that is pushing for better legislation out of D.C. and guidance from Women Heart and other organizations to encourage surgeons, cardiologists to refer women, always to refer women to cardiac rehab. There's such a disconnect between how men are treated versus women in the United States. And I hope that in Canada, it is better for women because I definitely was not guided on weightlifting or anything like that. And I just had to sit still and wait for my surgery. But I had a completely different issue than you. I do have a bicuspid valve, but that's not currently a problem. And my aorta is A-OK, thankfully. But when you're talking about the prehab, I have a couple of questions about that. The first one is you were saying that, and, and help me with your wording or how they worded it for you, you had to change the intensity because of how the body would respond. Can you speak to that a little bit more specifically and educate us on what that means? Because what I'm hearing is you can still be active, but you need these parameters. Are you able to like share with us what your PTs, how they explain that to you? Yeah. First of all, I'm, I'm not a medical professional. Oh yeah, we know. Don't worry. No one sue Cody, please. <laughs> and, and every situation is going to be different. So again, in my instance, I've been training for my sport that I compete in uh, for many, many years. And that, that gave me a bit of a leg up on the ceiling for me. 
in my instance, it was looking at essentially the intensities of my heart rate, how that would correlate to things like blood pressure within the body as well. And essentially looking at are the aerobic system, the anaerobic system, neuromuscular system, uh, those energy systems and the way the body responds as you ride at different intensities or, you know, pursue an activity at different intensities. And so for me, it was essentially looking at kind of like a zone two to zone three intensity of heart rate, uh, which my max heart rate is in and around mid 190s. My kind of threshold heart rate, if I was going all out for a, you know a 20 minute effort or a 30 minute effort, would be around 180. And so for my team, they felt quite comfortable giving me a ceiling of around 140 to 150. They said, when you're riding in and around that rate and you're you know not going above it, this isn't like a, a 140 average that has a bunch of spikes but you're approaching it as keep it that or lower, what's happening in the body is it's like a less strenuous impact on the body. That was kind of how I had to reapproach riding. So when I come up to a hill, rather than kind of just get out of my saddle and mash up the hill as hard as I can to just get it done with, that means I have to you know go into an easier gear, continue to spin up the hill, and try and keep things a little bit more steady. So the, the way I had to ride was changing. But again, it didn't mean I, I couldn't ride at all. And actually with the ceiling that I was given personally – it gave me quite a bit of freedom to do quite a bit with that kind of heart rate. I was still able to cruise around at 30 to 35 kilometers per hour. And so you can still see quite a bit of the, uh, of the countryside in that way. Wow. That's so fortunate for you. My arteries were being compressed and they were basically not refilling with blood. My heart was just short of oxygen. So yeah, we had completely different situations going on. And with the weightlifting, tell us a little bit more about that. Be a little more specific. So for me, it was, I've heard different ranges. Some individuals have restrictions that are a little bit lower. Some have them a little bit higher. For me, it was about 20 pounds. It meant that I could use weights up to about 20 pounds, but I I could build a modified program to do different strength activities with weights up to about 20 pounds. Uh, So I'm not doing, you know, 160 pound squat or anything like that. But it meant that I could do like a goblet squat with with a 20 pound weight or I could do different activities like incorporating those types of weights. So, again, the reality and the takeaway message that I'd encourage individuals to have conversations with their medical teams about is to say, okay, what makes sense for me? We don't live in a binary world where it's either 100 percent you can do every single thing you want to do or you do absolutely nothing. Some people may fall in the 50%. Some may fall in that kind of 20% of what they used to be able to do. Some may be able to do like 60% of what they used to be able to do. But learning and tailoring and finding a solution is going to keep everyone healthy while they're living and managing whatever challenges that they're uh, working with. Mm -hmm. Well said. Okay, so you had surgery in 2022, December of 2022. Tell us about that. How did it go? Uh, It went Pretty smoothly, as far as I know. I wasn't really really around for it, but very straightforward. The goal was to remove the aneurysm, replace it with with a synthetic graft, and potentially do some work in and around my aortic root and valve. But once they got in there and they looked at everything, despite having some minor mutations on the aortic valve, they found it worked reasonably functional compared to a normal valve not really uh, significantly less than any sort of normal valve. And with that in mind, they they looked at it and they said, you know, any sort of repair work or putting in a, a new aortic valve, both of these outcomes are going to come with a, a reduced quality of life for you. Could this valve fail at some point in the future? Maybe. But at this point, your odds are as good as anyone else is failing in the future because it, it works perfectly fine. And the fact that you developed 
an aneurysm over the course of many years, but your valve still works so well, we usually see things the other way around where the valve starts to go before the mutation can cause the type of change in your aorta that would cause an aneurysm. And so given that, if you've been able to push it through the rigor of many years of competitive sport and it still looked the way it did when we had you opened up, you're better off with this valve as it is. And so they left the valve. That simplified the procedure to just be focused on the ascending aortic aneurysm, not getting into the root and anything like that. And then they closed me up and sent me on my way. And the surgery itself had its ups and downs. I was really surprised with how I felt in the uh, first 24 hours after the surgery. I was quite upright in the bed, in the ICU. When my my mom and uh, my partner Emily came in to see me after the surgery, I was, you know, chipper and upright in bed and just having conversations. <laughs> They're looking at me like, can you just have a surgery? Like, I don't know. I guess this was, it was that easy. This is great. And then of course, once the IV lines in the intensity of the amount of drugs they were pumping into me started to subside and wean me off the highest amounts of drugs, that's when things really started to take a turn for the worse. I'd say the next 48 hours after that initial 24 were probably the hardest part of the journey for me. And there was a lot of time there where I was thinking, you know, I really made a mistake here. I was right on the cusp of needing the surgery, but I probably could have pushed it for another year or two, maybe a couple more years. Why did I do this? I had such a great year of riding my bike. Sure, I wasn't racing, but I was, you know, living life to my fullest. I was having a great time. And I just, I can't imagine feeling normal again because this just feels so horrible. I couldn't get comfortable. I was just like covered in sweat couldn't sleep. I was never awake, but never asleep really. And that was kind of what defined the next 48 hours when I was in the step down ward. But very quickly after that, or throughout that period, as they started to get me up and walking, you know, just getting out of bed was, was a crazy experience. And then walking 10 feet was a really hard experience. And each time when they said, you're going to be walking this much farther today, I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to be doing any of that because I feel horrible. But then I did it. And then it kept on getting better. And then they said, okay, today you're going to walk without a walker. And I'm like, absolutely not. And then I did it. And that just kept on continuing to be the journey and walking up the stairs. Are you kidding me? And then I did it. That really defined the entirety of that hospital stay after those 48 hours or the darkest 48 hours, I'll call it. uh, Things really started to exponentially improve. And quickly after that, I, I was ended up being discharged a day early. And so they said, you're good. You're on your way. And I walked out of the hospital. I got out of my, my bed that I was in, out of the room I was in, put on my shoes, no wheelchair, no nothing, took the elevator down to the front door and strolled out the front door, got in the backseat of my car with my pillow. If you look on my Instagram account, the kind of the first post that I, I made in this new approach of, of being a lot more of an advocate and, and demonstrating, you know, this was my own personal experience because of the lack of that awareness and, and wanting to have that before my surgery and wanting to share that experience for others who may be going through it or will be going through it in the future. You'll see within the kind of four or six photos, you know, the ICU day, the days after, the days when I'm just knocked out and in the bed in the ward, and then the days when I'm walking and it looks like I'm maybe going, you know, I'd be losing a race to a tortoise. And then Literally the next day, I'm I'm walking out with like hands in my pockets, just like yeah, hey, this is great. So it was a yeah, a, a real roller coaster of an experience in and of itself. It's amazing how quickly it does change, and I just felt like I, I just relived my entire hospital stay um, through your story. And my husband Jason took a video of me walking the next morning. Like they made me get up out of the bed 
several hours after surgery too. And I was like, you guys know, but I was so busy vomiting, you know, so I, I had other better things to do, like getting all those toxins out of my body. But he got a video of me the next day walking in the ICU hallway. And my memory says I was so fast. <laughs> I laugh when you said a, a tortoise could have beat you because I was so slow, but I've, I felt like I was so fast, but it was because my heart was finally getting oxygen. And like, I realized I wasn't going to die anymore. The roller coaster you go through um, physically, emotionally, mentally, it's, it's hard to really find the accurate words. So you were 29 at the time. So how many days total were you in the hospital? Uh, I think it was four, four or five days overall. Okay. Yeah. I was the same. And in the United States, at least, I don't know if they have this kind of the same equation for Canada, but for every decade that you are alive equals a day in the hospital after surgery. So I was let out a day early also. But yeah, it's like my dad also had open heart surgery, ironically, and for different reasons, but he was in the hospital for seven days because he was in his 70s, right? So yeah, it's, it's just kind of an interesting calculation that they use. So you go home, do you get a heart pillow also at the Ottawa Heart Institute or hospital? Kind of. I've seen a lot of the photos online and I was, I was hoping to get, you know, a nice heart shaped pillow, but mine was actually just a rectangle, but what? it was all brand <laughs> yeah, I know. That needs to be part of your project heart is to like bring heart pillows to Canada. Okay, so you get home and tell us about your recovery. Let's just, for all intents and purposes, I'm calling you a pro athlete. Okay, so you went into this at an advantage than I would say a lot of heart patients have. So, how was recovery for you? Yeah. So, I mean, just to give some context going into the surgery, I was really physically active, like right up until the surgery date, my last ride, because it was in December, I was riding inside at that point on Zwift. But my last ride was literally maybe 12 hours, eight hours before the surgery, like the afternoon before I went in at 6am the next morning. So I was pushing it like right up until the last day. And so on the other side of the surgery, I had my, my walking program and rehab kind of really picked up quite quickly. I think I was within a week of, of being discharged from the hospital. I mean, I was still sleeping quite a bit and I was, I was very thankful to be on, uh, on disability at that point. So I could really treat my recovery like a full-time job. And so if the body said I needed rest, then I was giving myself rest. If my body said, you know, move around the house and I was moving around the house and I really focused on the signals that my body was giving me and doing my best to, uh, you know, get a nice healthy diet in really focus on every aspect of it that I could. And I was sleeping quite a bit. I mean, at that point, the week I was in the hospital and the first week out of the hospital, I think I was sleeping anywhere from 15 to 18 hours a day. Like it was, it was quite a bit. And I was really focused on saying, if that's what my body needs, then that's what my body needs. But as soon as I started my, my walking program, it started very short it was, you know, start with 10 minutes a day. Then it was two times 10 minutes a day, then two times 12 minutes a day, then two times 14 minutes a day. And it was just a little bit more every single time. And thankfully, we had a very mild, at least start to winter in Ottawa last year. And so I was able to do quite a bit of this walking outside and not worry about the frigid, you know, minus 30 degrees that, that we deal with up in Canada. I was able to do, you know, I think 90% of the walks, 95% of the walks, unless it was a snowstorm outside. But very quickly, 
the timelines of, I think it was supposed to get up to about two times 40 minutes a day. And then once you hit that, then you're supposed to try and target a certain distance within that uh, 40 minutes. And I think halfway through the period of I was supposed to hit it, I was like, oh, whoops, I'm already there and I already walked too fast. <laughs> so the, the recovery went really quite well. And then I just continued to focus on it from there. So I just kept on walking. For any cyclists that are listening to the podcast, obviously, the, you know, the cafe ride concept is a very popular one. And so I just kind of borrowed that concept. Caffeine really wasn't having much of an impact on my blood pressure. And so I didn't have to, you know, go cold turkey on anything like that. I'm a big lover of coffee. And so I'd just walk to a cafe and I'd get a coffee and then I'd walk back home. So the exact same concept as the cafe ride, except while walking. So after about six weeks, I'm supposed to go in and do my first proper checkup, see how the incision is healing, see how the breastbone's healing, see how everything's going. That unfortunately got canceled because my surgeon was uh, sick that week. And so then I called the uh, the team that was responsible for all aortic patients at the Heart Institute and talked to the, the lead nurse there and, and said, you know, we were going to have conversations around how the recovery is going and whether, you know, the uh, sternum's fused back together enough to start thinking about supporting a little bit more weight probably would have been cleared at this point. How would you feel if I tried to get on the bike? She said, well, you know, you've been walking a lot. It's been going really well. Don't be dumb. Don't, you know, stand up and get out of saddle or anything. Don't be reefing on the handlebars or anything. But if you think you can comfortably hold your upper body while on, on your bike, then give it a try and see what happens. And so pretty much six weeks to the day from the surgery was my first bike ride after. And from there, I just didn't look back. It was a blend of walking, riding, obviously a lot of low intensity still. I was still on so many different drugs. It looked like we had a pharmacy up in our bathroom. Mm-hmm. What drugs were you on? You know, aspirin, beta blockers, like just all the kind of typical things that uh, that they're using to just keep the heart protected in those early days of, of recovery. And then those would slowly get weaned off as uh, as the recovery progressed. So I think around the two to three month mark was when I was more or less just on a baby aspirin at that point. But I was able to continue to do some riding, do some walking, and the recovery just continued to progress that way. And around the three, three and a half month mark was when I went in for my stress testing. And they did stress testing for me on a bike because they wanted to, you know, kind of match the sport I'm involved in. And uh, for me, I didn't really get to see a whole lot. There was a lot of, you know, data being collected in the background but all i could see was on the on the bike was a minute clock that would count down i had to keep my cadence within a certain range and i was hooked up to a ekg and vo2 max blood pressure so they were doing all the testing across the board to see how the heart would respond as i pushed myself up to a higher and higher intensity and see at what point you know things started to signal okay the heart's not quite ready to do this level of work yet well, as it turns out, I <laughs> knocked the results off the, the chart page that they were testing it on. I think at the beginning, they thought I was being maybe a little bit overly optimistic or, or exaggerating. You know, you know, I used to race bikes and I'm hoping to get back to racing bikes and things like that. Okay, that's nice, Cody. Just do your test. And after a while, I was like, oh, wow, you're, you're on like step 17. We don't usually see people go past like step eight. <laughs> and so I got to the point where the, the resistance was so high with the cadence I had to hold, I was like rocking back and forth. The bike was kind of like lifting the legs up and down a little bit. And they're like, okay, this is enough. You, we have enough data. I think you're fine. I ended up getting my heart rate up to, you know, pretty much right up to a, a typical max heart rate for me in the 190s. No significant arrhythmias or anything forming um, on that stress test day. Blood pressure was what would be expected for the various intensities. And so at that point they said, you're good. There's really nothing happening now that would indicate to us you need to live a modified 
recovery and uh, you're ready to go back at it. And so at that point, mid to late March, racing starts in North America, usually end of April, beginning of May. And so I looked at it and I said, you know what, I'm going to try racing this year. So I had about six weeks to bootstrap a training program. And then I jumped right back into racing about five months post uh, heart surgery. And that was May of 2023. Yeah. Incredible. So I'm just wrapping up now a, uh, a full season of racing. On paper, was it very monumental? No, I mean, a lot of mid-pack and or not finishing type of results. So that in and of itself was a pretty special experience, especially when you consider that I missed most of the typical training period for cyclists, which is the winter month. In my book, you won every race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was fun to have conversations with with folks on the start line beforehand, and a couple of times, you know, announcers would make, you know, oh, this guy in the in the group today is uh, is post open heart surgery, and he's here racing. And then people would be like, "Whoa, can I see your scar?" And you know, what you had what? <laughs> so it was uh, it was fun to have conversations with different people. And now people call you Cardiac Cody. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's part of the what I'll call the rebranding process. So um, when I came out on the other side of the surgery, again, something I had experienced over the course of 2022 and 2021 was just this, this lack of awareness, this lack of understanding and a lack of supports available for individuals like myself. So when I was diagnosed with this and I'm looking at who else had an aortic aneurysm or who else has dealt with some form of heart or cardiovascular disease that I can, I can look to. And so much of the literature and so much of our societal bias points us towards, you know, the elderly, people that have pre-existing health conditions that, you know, it's like that's reserved for people that have smoked their whole life or people who are, you know, eating a lot of junk food or, you know, they're near the end of their life anyway. It's like, I'm not near the end of my life. I'm, I'm in my 30s. I'm racing as a competitive athlete. Like, where's the where's the literature that I can draw on that's going to make me feel better about this experience? And it was so wholly lacking. And so it just made me realize, you know, if I can share my story and there's a future version of myself that's going through the same thing, then at least they can latch on to that piece. And, you know, you said at the beginning of the podcast, you found me through hashtags. That's just what I started to do. I started sharing my, my story on, on Instagram. I rebranded my account to Cardiac Cody to, to make it a little bit more, you know, connected to this heart journey that I'm on and started sharing information about aneurysms, pieces of my recovery, talking about the, the experiences I've had as, as someone who's now kind of a heart advocate on the other side of this whole journey. And it's been really amazing. And what it really taught me is just how many people are living the exact same experience that I lived that equally like myself thought I'm the only one that's going through this. No one else is like me and I have to suffer this in silence and alone because there's nothing about me here. I think I've talked to maybe 50 or so individuals around the world, you know, people over in Europe, people in the States, people in Canada. Some of them are featuring a new diagnosis. Some of them just had the surgery. Some of them are waiting for the surgery and the conversations vary. Sometimes it's just as simple as, you know, what was the surgery like? I'm really nervous. Can you just talk me through the experience and just put me at ease? Some people are like, I'm on the other side of the surgery and I'm really struggling with X. Did you also struggle with X and how did it get better for you? Uh, some people are just trying to learn a little bit more about their new diagnosis. And so all of them, you know, just through the same way that we connected and in the messaging function of Instagram, we've been able to have a lot of really great connections and I've been able to hopefully have a, a positive impact on their lives because that's that, like I said, that's really what I was looking for. And yeah. Incredible. And so generous of you. I think of the people who are afraid to be seen, who are afraid to to ask for help. And that's such a shame because it's proven in the research that 
when we are alone, that directly affects our physical health. And there is so much beauty that can be shared when you are willing to be helped or help someone else. So tell me about Project Heart. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fairly early stages right now. It's kind of what I've started to brand this effort that I've put in over the last year. So, like I said, I made a, a strong effort to connect with individuals who have gone through some form of heart or cardiovascular disease themselves, but equally started to try to do some awareness raising within, you know, within the sport of cycling. But I think there's a lot of messages that can be uh, applied to other other forms of life as well. I think everyone can benefit from learning a little bit more about their own heart health, regardless of whether they've had a, a challenge or experience related to their heart that dictates whether or not they should. So within the sport of cycling, you know, in recent years, there's been a number of significant, and we're talking about, you know, Tour de France level cyclists who are dealing with with cardiac issues. Uh, some of them have been forced to retire. One, one individual went in cardiac arrest as he crossed the finish line. It's something that can impact our sport and become a problem for us, regardless of whether we were born with something or exist with something. And that's that's kind of the way I framed it is to say, you know, everyone's dealt a different hand at birth. Some get a less lucky hand than others. But during the course of our lives, there's many things that we can do that are going to you know, cause some form of cardiac remodeling in a way that's going to have a negative impact over time. There's a huge correlation in endurance sport with arrhythmias developing in the later years of life. And so this doesn't have to be, you know, a traumatic one day I, I smash my heart rate up to the 190s and the next day something really bad happened. But over multiple years of doing things, if you're not thinking about how to live a heart healthy life, these things could come back and haunt you in the future as well. And so this doesn't have to be, you know, creating a culture of fear. This doesn't have to be scaring people away from doing things, being active and getting our bodies moving is incredibly healthy. But to think that you can do that without any repercussions full stop is also something that I'd say, well, you know, maybe give that a bit of a second thought. So when it comes to the sport of cycling, for example, the very basic advocacy points I would talk about are, you know, do you use a heart rate strap? Do you know what your heart rate zones are? Do you know what your max heart rate is? Do you know what your normal heart rate zones would be? Have you ever taken your blood pressure before? Have you ever thought about learning a little bit more about those baselines? Because the more you learn about your baselines, the more you can identify when something is starting to deviate from the norm. There's been individuals I've talked to and it's like, oh yeah, we had a really hard group ride and my heart rate was like in the 200s. And it's like, I mean, that might be normal for you. That might not be very good either. <laughs> these are, you know, these, don't look at that kind of situation and be like, oh yeah, that's fine. That's not a problem because it will just do that. It's like, well, you know, these are, maybe you should take an easy day the next day. You know, are you, are you kind of approaching whatever sport you're involved in running, cycling, swimming, whatever, where you're, where you're thinking, okay, in the same way that you wouldn't go and do a leg day every day or do, you know, your biceps every single day. And you wouldn't go into a gym thinking I can infinitely push weight. I can pick up this 300 pound dumbbell and push it because there is no ceiling to what my muscles can achieve. You've got to think about your heart, which is also a muscle in the same way. So yes, you can push it to great limits and you can achieve great things with it. But like any other muscle in our body, it also needs rest. It needs the chance to recover. And that there is a point when it's like, yeah, maybe you're pushing it a little bit too much. What I'm hearing you say is that Project Heart is really about building awareness of one's heart and body. Yep. 100%. And so for individuals who have 
not experienced something related to their heart on their own, there's there's a, a wealth of opportunity they can learn about their own heart health and, and habits that they can adopt to live a heart-healthy life. For individuals that have faced some struggle or challenge in the past, Project Heart for me is about demonstrating that you can still achieve great things because in those early days, I certainly wondered whether I'd ever be the same athlete again or even able to compete again. And, you know, every individual is going to have a different story, but I think the common denominator there is everyone can still achieve greatness. That greatness might be redefined, but do not let any sort of diagnosis get in the way of living a full life and doing, you know, following your hopes and dreams. And then the other aspect of it for me is really raising and supporting awareness related to the Heart Institute. Again, as I mentioned, Canada's largest cardiac center, heavily involved in research on the global stage to advance treatment with with heart and cardiovascular diseases. And so, you know, you think about something like what I've gone through with open heart surgery to address an ascending aortic aneurysm. Is there a point in the future where the endovascular related treatments of descending aortic aneurysms or, or abdominal aneurysms where we don't actually have to open up the body anymore? Can we start to get to those more or less invasive solutions? I've talked to a number of individuals, quite a few who are in the UK, who are going to be having uh, the Paris procedure. And I forget what that acronym means, but essentially they they wrap uh, the aorta rather than replacing the disease tissue where the aneurysm is. They basically reinforce it and put a supporting piece around it. And one of the big benefits that's touted with that model of treatment is that you don't have to go on bypass. So where a lot of risks come with the, the bypass component, you don't actually have to do the you know heart-stopping component of open heart surgery. You still have to open up the sternum, but it it changes some of those dynamics. And so there's so many different aspects of how we can advance the treatments related to heart disease that are going to improve outcomes for patients. And so I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing through Project Heart is is supporting that on a global stage while also having a really intimate relationship with, with my own experience on a local stage as well. Cody McKay, Cardiac Cody, you are amazing. And I know that anyone listening to this episode has found this incredibly inspiring, hope-filled. You are a ninja. Thank you so much for your generosity and sharing your, your story from start to finish. Before we hang up, I would love for you to give those facing heart surgery or their caregivers one piece of advice that you think would be most helpful? I would say just don't give up. Days will get better. There are huge, hugely dark days and hugely challenging days, but there is always going to be a sunnier and a brighter day. And don't get caught up in the mindset that every single day is going to feel like that dark and stormy day because you will always surprise yourself with how much sunnier it can get on another day. And so keep pushing, keep trying, keep working towards that recovery, keep working towards living that full life. And you will be more than satisfied and more than grateful, I think. Wow. Very wise words. And I could echo those for sure. Thank you. And listeners, you will be able to find all the ways to get in touch with Cody in the show notes. Be sure to follow him on Instagram for inspiration and be sure to come back next Tuesday for another inspiring episode of The Heart Chamber. Thank you for sharing a few heartbeats of your day with me today. Please be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening. Share with a friend who will value what we discussed. Go to either Apple Podcasts and write us a review or mark those stars on Spotify. 
I read these and your feedback is so encouraging and it also helps others find this podcast. Also, please feel free to drop me a note at boots at theheartchamberpodcast.com. I truly want to know how you're doing and if this podcast has been a source of hope, inspiration, and healing for you. Again, I am your host, Boots Knighton, and thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday for another episode of The Heart Chamber.